Let's see if I can get up these stairs here. I came up these stairs earlier and it was black, black dark, dark up here. I noticed they've turned up the lights and I tripped and landed flat on my face. So I may have this, yeah, I have this head pain and I, <laughs> no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Okay, so I always like to come up and see what the title of my talk is because uh, me and Deb have this thing where I try to give a, a descriptive title of my talk and she wants to make it sexy. And so I, I'm, I'm always really intrigued to see what I'm talking about. Let me see, the yin and the yang. <laughs> oh, this is good. Um, uh, so what I wanted to talk to you guys, uh, well, here's my disclosures. I'm consultant, hither and yon. Um, the learning objectives you guys have, of course. So this, this may be the most important slide of the day. And our ideal would be to really understand what a lesion is. What, where in the neuroaxis, what's the neurophysiology, what's the anatomy, uh, what's the neurochemistry of the lesion. And then to match an intervention that intercedes with that lesion, with those specifics of that lesion. So that would be the ideal. And maybe a hundred years hence, somebody will stand up and give this talk, uh, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, we precisely understand that you know, for one patient, they had this lesion, and for that patient, we designed this specific therapy. Uh, but of course, we're not there yet. So what I'm going to encourage is to reassume the, 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 the posture of the diagnostician and trying to really understand what's wrong with patients before you begin to intercede. Uh, and this also applies to research. So, so I, I know that this, this is the, uh, the interface of the, the mechanism of disease with the mechanism of the intervention, and certainly you should do that before you per should proceed to do research with any intervention, any drug in particular. Uh, but it's also important that we do that as clinicians, uh, that we have a, uh, the best possible idea of what's actually wrong before we jump to give the patient opioids, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been in this business long enough that I've seen the, you know, the pendulum swing of uh, when I got in the business, you know, people were dying in agony and they were getting Tylenol for long bone fractures and stuff like that. So I was kind of a zealot waving the flag for, you know, new better opioids and uh, better accessibility. So I was a, a, a zealot. Uh, and then in the, uh, uh, the 90s, late 90s, and the early part of this century, uh, you know, it was the time where everybody got opioids first visit, first time, and if they came back and still hurt, they'd get more opioids in it. You, Dr. Harden, are a bad doctor because you don't proceed that way. So then I was a nihilist. But predictably, here comes the pendulum again, swinging at us like the sword of Democles. And, um, you know, so now I'm a zealot again. You know, these ridiculous CDC guidelines and all that nonsense. You know, it, it, why can't we just stop the dang thing? But, but, but my point is, opioids have ruined the practice of pain medicine. What it's done is it's turned us, we clinicians, uh, or we design consultants, into very lazy people. Somebody walks in my clinic and they say, I hurt. You know, in the 90s, you'd say, well, here, take opioids. It works for everything, and it's completely safe. There's no worries here. So, so clinicians became incredibly lazy. They didn't bother to diagnose anymore. 
you know, uh, some of the young people I talk to, they don't really know how to conduct a good history, a good physical exam, and to supplement that with some of the fancy expensive testing to really understand what's wrong before knee-jerk they jump into some sort of therapy. So I want to talk about re-energizing people, not only in, in, in the research world, which, which is where I live now, uh, but in the clinical world. We need to be diagnosticians again. We need to understand the lesion and the mechanism of disease before we treat, before we even presume to select a therapy. So I'll get off the soapbox and we'll talk. Now, any slide that I'll put up today about anatomy, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neurochemistry could be turned into a half-day symposium. Any single concept that I'm going to bring forward today. So I, I'm not going to teach you everything about that. I'm just going to try to fire you guys up for the, for the, for the job of being a physician and diagnosing first before you treat, okay? And as researchers, you know, understanding how your drug works and what types of diseases that it may be uh, useful for. Okay. Um, so everybody here who knows me probably knows my, my uh, model disease, the disease I've researched most is CRPS. So you'll see some of my slides today. I'm just going to use that sort of as a model uh, to convey some of these constructs. This is certainly not a talk about CRPS. But CRPS is, a, you know, a complicated disease, and we, we keep trying drugs, you know, in the research arena that don't work, and, and everybody's upset, and, you know, and patients aren't getting better. Uh, but the point is, CRPS, probably more than any other disease in, in pain management, is multifactorial. There's multiple different etiologies of the pain um, from the periphery to all the way up to the uh, cerebral cortex and all the way back out on the sympathetic nervous system. And you can have lesions anywhere in there. So, so that's why it's a good model, model for our talk today because it um, uh, really represents that sort of uh, uh, neuroaxial uh, possibility in terms of lesion. Uh, but we'll start talking a little bit about the periphery. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some sample lesions and mechanisms, then I'm going to talk about some sample testing to help you zero in on that, and then I'm going to talk about some sample therapies, okay? So bear with me, and I'll try to leave time at the end for specific questions. But, you know, we... We, um, you know, this is 2007, and we, we were just all so excited. We, we, we knew some of these receptors in the skin that were causing peripheral pain. Um, and then we started to elucidate uh, the different receptors in the skin. Uh, you know, we, first of all, we had one receptor, and then, uh-oh, we've got seven receptors. And now if you look at it, there's well over 50 that have been characterized. So... For me to talk about, you know, specific lesions in the skin would be crazy, but this is, a, um, uh, this is a field that you need to keep up with because pain begins in the periphery in most cases. Uh, and, you know, these, these TRIP uh, family uh, uh, receptors are essentially involved in, in, in uh, detecting heat all the way to noxious cold. So sometimes it's so hot it's painful and sometimes it's so cold, it's painful, but you can have a lesion at this level that, that where all hell breaks loose. And now these, these normal thermoreceptors that would, would be responsible for the warm spectrum, 
now actually you're sending a pain message. So you can have a lesion right at the skin level. Um, and you can test. Uh, you know, you do your history, your physical examination, certainly everything everybody learned in, uh, in medical school. You can touch, you know, touch with the pen, and the patients can say how, ow, and they can tell you subjectively how much it, it hurts. But you know, in an effort to objectify our understanding of, of the lesion, the mechanism of disease, uh, you can usually come up with at least quasi-quantifiable uh, or quasi-objective testing, and, and that's what quantitative sensory testing does for us. Uh, and and you, you can have thermal quantitative sensory testing, mechanical, chemical, et cetera. Um, in your clinic uh, and in your uh, situation, you, know, you need to understand what uh, testing mechanisms you have, not only for this specific uh, area, the, 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 the skin, uh, but in all things, you need to understand what fancy tests you can get. Because sometimes, in this case, QST is quasi-objective, and that's a heck of a lot better than the fully subjective that we deal with in terms of history and physical exam. Uh, but some of the tests that, that we have available, uh, for instance, uh, the, the MRI scan is fully objective. The subjectivity comes in in the interpretation. But push towards objectivity in terms of understanding your lesions. And then let's get to, um, again, this is my example. Uh, you know, how would you treat that? How would you treat a lesion of these, um, uh, of these receptors in the skin? And there's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, the, uh, capsaicin was one of the first things that, that worked on the thermoceptors. Uh, you know, lidocaine, prilocaine, clonidine, and then anything in the world you can smear on the skin. I gave a lecture this morning about ketamine, and I had this slide. This slide's been in my slide set for two decades. Uh, and somebody said, well, we're using ketamine for, for uh, skin lesions. Um, uh, and, and I said, what? I've never heard of that. I have heard of that. It was in my slide set. <laughs> but, but, you know, people are smearing all kinds of stuff. The problem is there's, very, there's essentially no randomized controlled trials of this. It's all anecdote. Uh, and then when you start, start adding six or seven or eight things in a cream and smearing it on and saying that it fixes something, it certainly doesn't fix my... Uh, my idea that we need to understand the lesion. Um, the next thing up is uh, peripheral sensitization. So you've got skin level, and then right below that, that you've got sensitization of these complicated structures. Um, you have tissue damage, uh, and we used to think, you know, Sherringtonian, well, that would cause the stimulation of a C fiber to go up to the central nervous system, and that's it. That's the only consideration. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that, of course, now there's uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of possibilities in terms of sensitization uh, out in the periphery. Um, and you can look at the slide and you see uh, several of the things. Uh, this is circa 2005. And, of course, we have things that can intercede. If we're looking, for instance, at prostaglandin uh, error or prostaglandin lesion, or we want to modify the prostaglandins to affect the lesion, uh, you know, we have old drugs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And here's a list, and everybody knows this, backwards and forwards, right? Well, you should. And you need to understand that different non-steroidals work in different ways and in different people. So I used to lecture uh, to my, my residents, you know, if you, if you, if you 
commit to using non-steroidals, you've got to commit to using at least a representative of each of the classes because you never know in what patient and what lesion it's actually going to work. So you have to commit to understanding these different families of um, uh, anti-inflammatory agents. And, of course, you know, never forget, everybody says non-steroidal, non-steroidal, you know, probably the most effective agent for modifying some of these features at the skin level or in the periphery uh, are steroids themselves. Um, also, now uh, the, the Pandora's box that we opened in understanding the lesions to treat uh, in the periphery uh, were when we started looking at glia. Uh, you know, glia, the glue, you know, is just what, hel- what holds the central nervous system together, right? Well, that's wrong. The glia is uh, eight, 70 to 80 percent of the central nervous system, and they are uh, extremely active agents in pain and the transmission of pain, uh, perhaps more so than the neurotransmitters that we tr- traditionally ascribe to uh, 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 transmitting pain. So you look out at the periphery and you say, how in the world are we going to get glia out there short of uh, uh, biopsies? Uh, and you can do things, like you put these little, little, little suction cups on the skin and suck up uh, a blister, and then you sample the blister uh, and you send it off to your lab. Uh, and it tells you the different cytokines that may be abnormal. Uh, this, this is, again, back to CRPS blisters, uh, and we see that IL-6 is, is up in patients, uh, certain patients with CRPS, uh, and then uh, once treated, the IL-6 goes down, uh, TNF-alpha. Uh, and we do have specific drugs, too. There's, uh, there's drugs that manipulate these specific things, uh, lenalidomide, uh, again, is IL-6 uh, TNF-alpha, just to carry on with the example. Uh, we tried that in CRPS, and it didn't work. Uh, and, and you wonder, it, it, it may have worked in a subset of patients. Uh, and this is sort of a, an important concept that's, that is related to our talk today. Um, uh, in CRPS, we, you know, we make the diagnosis with general clinical diagnostic criteria People come into a trial, and the trial doesn't work. You'll look at it, and you'll see that some patients responded very well. But writ large, there was not enough patients responding that statistically we could, we could prove that our drug worked. So uh, in a lot of areas of me- medicine, we're asking not the question, do they have CRPS? I mean, you need clinical strength screens to get them into the ballpark. But then you have to ask another question. Is there a clinically significant subset that we can and should identify so that we can use this drug that's known to help that? All right, we'll move up into the neuroaxis, uh, you know, the aphapsis. You, you remember this. You have a damage to a nerve, and the nerves are proximal, and now they start to actually conduct from nerve to nerve without going through the neurotransmitters and the, and the receptors. Uh, these are called aphapsis. They are naturally occurring, uh, but they also can occur in the face of, uh, uh, of a lesion, such as inflammation. Uh, and then we talk about issues like neurogenic inflammation. Everybody knows that, uh, you know, when you, you stimulate a C-fiber, it sends the message up to the central nervous system, but it sends a recurrent immediately back to the skin. Uh, and if you look at this, you have the good old-fashioned wheel and flare uh, reaction of the skin. 
but again, this is, this is one of the areas that people just forget. This is a, a mechanism that people don't talk about much anymore. Although you will see the wheel and flare if you look for it. Or when you stimulate skin uh, with non-noxious stimuli, that people will get a painful flare uh, in a pathologic situation. Uh, but again, you know, we do, we're not helpless with this. We, you know, this is an example of an intervention that would act uh, at these uh, faptic uh, neuro, uh, uh, neurogenic um, uh, inflammation uh, sites. Such, it would be lidocaine patch. Neuropathic pain. Now, we know a lot more about neuropathic pain for, for a great reason, uh, and it's money. Uh, so the, the drug companies discovered uh, neuropathic pain about mid-1980. Uh, and um, there was a, a company that had a, a, a little uh, anti-epileptic drug called uh, uh, Neurontin. You guys may have heard of that one, gabapentin. I'm sorry, gabapentin is, is the word I'm supposed to say. Uh, and, it, and there was a, a doctor in, in, um, in Ohio that had CRPS patients who were also epileptic. And he put them on this kind of weak, not so good anti-epileptic drug, and the CRPS got better. Um, and the company called me up and says, what is this neuropathic pain? You're a neurologist. Tell, tell us about this. And I said, well, I guess I understand that. So we post-traumatic neuralgia, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, these are the models we use. And the rest is history because before we even finished the trials, it was a billion-dollar drug. My point is sometimes, you know, we do have information about some of these uh, lesions and some of these mechanisms. Neuropathic pain is one. Uh, and that's because there was a whole bunch of money flowing into the study of neuropathic pain uh, starting in the 80s. And there's all different kinds of ways to, to make the diagnosis. You've got the electrodiagnosis stuff. You can go all the way up to, as we do in CRPS sometime, we do a punch biopsy, and you can actually look at the anatomy, okay? And this is, this is dramatic but helpful. Uh, you know, until I started suggesting to um, uh, some of the hospital administrators that we should be doing punch biopsies on my CRPS patients, uh, and they put me in a straitjacket and took me out into the parking lot because, as you know, CRPS patients, you know, some of the things that cause the CRPS are sometimes very minor. So we don't do the nerve fiber density testing in CRPS, but it can be done, and there is research coming out of Europe primarily uh, using this as a way to better understand the lesion. And then, you know, we're up to the point with neuropathic pain where we have good meta-analyses, uh, and certainly it's not my, uh, my point today to, uh, to look into that. Next step in the neuroaxis to look for lesion uh, is the ganglia. And, um, you know, everybody knows this, but you've got the sensory ganglia. It's a very simple thing. You have the, the first synapse there. Um, uh, you know, it's one transmitter, as Sherrington said you know, and it goes directly on a single line? Of course not. It's much more complicated than that. And what's going on at ganglia uh, is representative of, of the entire neuroaxis. And you've got, for, for instance, you have sympathetic innervation of the sensory ganglia, and you can have an error there. So there's a lot to think about when you're just talking about ganglia. 
Uh, and we do have interventions that can directly impact this, and uh, uh, this is the, for instance, the interventional pain therapies. Uh, you have sympathetic blocks, IV regional nerve blocks, et cetera. Next step in the, uh, in the neuroaxis um, is uh, when we finally get into the central nervous system. Um, and, you know, this is from 1995. And again, this was new then. We, we thought that we were on the threshold of really understanding human pain uh, when we started talking about this, this brand new thing, the NMDA receptor. Because we knew that you, you have the, the C fibers that come in and they uh, transmit via glutamate to the central nervous system. We thought it was, you know, one receptor, uh, uh, one transmitter, uh, and of course, we know now that the, the NMDA receptors are incredibly complex, and there are multiple receptors that are side-by-side side with this. Uh, for instance, we actually did know about AMPA receptors uh, and neurokinin receptors, uh, but clearly this, this transmission from the, the first neuron out in the periphery to the second neuron in the central nervous system is not only a place where you can find um, uh, a lesion, where you can have an error, but this also gives us uh, uh, an opportunity to treat. Uh, and we understand now that the, this, this, uh, uh, this first neuron to second neuron transmission is not only influenced by different receptors and, and different um, uh, Different, uh, different mechanisms on the, on the receptor of the second neuron, but it's highly influenced by glia, uh, the astrocytes uh, and the microglia in this case. Uh, and again, I put up this slide again because uh, one of the most um, um, specific things that we can do, the intervention of, of note for these lesions, uh, would be interventional pain therapies. Uh, and this would be, uh, you know, include things like uh, neurostimulation at this level, um, and, and again, you know, this is a, this is a recurring story, and understanding the, the lesions uh, that can cause pain is the glia cells are, are incredibly important in the central nervous system. They're not just the, that, that structure to hold the nerves together. They're very active players in the transmission of pain. Um, the CSF levels uh, of uh, all these cytokine drugs, uh, uh, I'm sorry, cytokine neurotransmitters, um, uh, is becoming better understood, and we again we have the uh, opportunity to manipulate uh, the the glia. Finally, we're into the central nervous system. Uh, you know, this is this is this is it was the black box. Now we're starting to understand it better. Brainstem, hypothalamus, limbic system, cortex, uh, and and you know we're not helpless here in terms of getting quantitative data. Uh, the fMRI has revolutionized our. Uh, understanding and appreciation of things that go on in the central nervous system, uh, and then the ways that these areas of activity talk to each other. This, this is where the money is in terms of understanding the lesion, uh, is how these blobs, as my psychology com uh, uh, colleagues call it, speak to each other, and how vigorously they speak to each other, and how they accentuate one another or suppress one another. Uh, but these are the lesions of the future that we will, uh, uh, that we will attack. Uh, and here's the uh, connectivity um, uh, pictures that we have. And this has is, this is actually started to open some doors in terms of our understanding of best therapies and best interventions. Um, here's something as an example. Uh, we, we know what the pain of osteoarthritis looks like 
uh, in terms of the uh, fMRI. We can use that now as an objective test to test a drug. We have the picture. We know what it looks like. Uh, we add, in this case, tw uh, 200 milligram of uh, an unnamed drug, and we see that one hour after the drug that these areas of activity in the central nervous system start to decline. Notice up top, this is the visual analog score. This is the, the subjective report of the patient to pain. So as the, as the areas of activity become less active, less red in this case, the visual analog scale goes down, and then three hours post-drug, the, 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 the blobs are almost essentially gone. So, so again, understanding the neuroanatomy and the neurophysiology and then de developing a test so that we might bring in interventions and see if they, uh, they impact that, um, in this case, uh, objective test. A big can of worms in terms of understanding the pathophysiology of pain is that it is always, always a, a, a biopsychosocial disease. I used to tell my residents this, and this is, this is absolutely true, if you ignore the psychology, if you ignore the sociology, you will fail. You will not be able to treat your patient. You will not be able to treat the pain. You know, going to radiology. Because, you know, it, to, to try to presume that it's all, you know, neurophysiology, all specific anatomy uh, is wrong. Um, uh, in real patients, biopsychosocial. And the good news is, is that we do have some great interventions for some of these issues. If somebody is profoundly depressed, we've got great antidepressant drugs, second-generation drugs that have very low side effect, very great cost-benefit uh, in regards to the intervention we're after. But what are we doing now? This is not neuroanatomy. This is something else. But it's important, something else, uh, not only in terms of understanding mechanism, and the reasons that some patients don't get better, but it opens up opportunities for treatment. And we can go objective on this. It's not just DSM, I guess we're on five now, or is it six? DSM uh, five. Um, it's uh, an opportunity to look at some of the, uh, the, the this, in this case, the DTI testing uh, of, uh, of patients which correspond to anxiety. So it's not all in their head. It's not something pejorative. This is something that we can look at and see and prove and then come with an intervention to see if it impacts this methodology we have to observe. So um, what I'm asking you to do and what we're, we're trying to do now in the field of, of CRPS is we're trying to look at these clinically significant subsets. I mean, would the subsets be based on anatomy or physiology or the response to drugs. Uh, this, this was considered a no-no uh, when, when I was a young researcher. Is you, never, uh, you never try to get your diagnosis by giving a patient a drug. Uh, but some, in some ways, it's logical. I mean, if you think that, you know, maybe, the, for instance, the depression is contributing to the failure to get better, treat the depression and see what happens. Uh, well, certainly that was a no-no, but this, this, is a, this is sort of an interesting reverse engineering of the situation where you come in with an intervention, we know how it works, uh, and see what happens. It'll help you understand the lesion and the mechanism of disease. Um, 
Okay, so uh, this, is, this, is, this is one of my big bugaboos, is that everybody, you know, we think we understand the afferent side, you know, from the skin to the central nervous system. Pat yourself on the back, we're done. That's only half the story. Because the, the central nervous system is always communicating with the periphery. So never forget the efferent side of the equation. And this is not efferent in the sense of muscle and muscle spasm and motor. This is more um, the efferent side, uh, such as the sympathetic nervous system. This is how the central nervous system talks back and feeds back to the periphery. And this is an almost unresearched area of how to treat pain and how to understand pain. Certainly in the CRPS field, I mean, we used to call it, for God's sake, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Um, so we, we were aware that, you know, the sympathetic nervous system was involved, but we didn't know how often and how much. Uh, so don't forget the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, here's my young... Um, uh, this, is, this is my assistant reminding me that the fight-or-flight nervous system, of, of course, is very important in CRPS. I mean, if you have pain and autonomic disturbance, you're pretty much there even... Uh, even if you want to go through the, you know, the formal uh, statistically derived diagnostic criteria, pain and autonomic disturbance, you're there. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the sympathetic nervous system, uh, I was taught that it was norepinephrine or acetylcholine on the other side, but, but norepinephrine, uh, and that was it, and it did uh, vasoconstriction, and that's why we're saying it's involved in CRPS, uh, but now we know that the sympathetic nervous system brings literally dozens, if not hundreds, of, of chemicals to the periphery, which are directly influencing whether or not there is pain, whether or not uh, the lesion is active or deactive or getting better. Uh, so uh, please don't forget the sympathetic nervous system in your consideration uh, of, uh, of mechanism. And we now talk, we, we have talked off and on about the sympathetically maintained pain where they actually, the sympathetic nervous system, the way that the brain talks back out to the periphery is the error, is the lesion of note, uh, and certainly must be the, uh, the, the, the way that we attend to um, um, uh, the, um, uh, not only the lesion but the, uh, the intervention. We have testing for this. For, you know, remember that it's uh, vasoconstriction on the, from the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, and here's, uh, you know, here's the, new, uh, uh, the new trendy thing that uh, potentially will revolutionize our understanding of lesion versus intervention, uh, and this is genetics versus pharmacogenetics. Uh, and now the understanding that you know, this, th we have a specific lesion that we can see in a patient, uh, and we may have a, either an explanation now to say this is the diagnosis and this is what we need to treat, but in some cases we actually may have a specific drug or a bespoke or tailored drug that we may come in uh, and treat a specific uh, genetic uh, error or genetic lesion. Um, and, you know, again, in CRPS we, we certainly see all the HLA stuff and we see... Um, uh, you know, these are some of the gene candidate gene analysis studies. This may revolutionize our approach to not only making diagnosis and understanding mechanism, uh, but what specifically we do for it. All right. Um, 
like I say, any one of these slides I could do a half-day symposia to talk about the specifics, but I wanted to leave some time at the end so that we could discuss this uh, and you might ask me questions. So, have at it. Now, I think, I think we have a, um, uh, a microphone uh, at the back. Uh, if, we, if everybody could ask your question into that, because I'm a little hard of hearing. Are there any questions? I guess I should start with that. Yes. So I find the research on genetics and pain management incredibly interesting, but there doesn't seem to be a lot out there that, yes. that I've found. So could you elaborate on where some of that's ongoing or on which source or which study? Because clearly all that you've talked about to me would be essential to tie in to this kind of genetic research. Yes. Um, well, the, the, the pharmacogenetic, uh, you're, you're, at, you're not asking the question, where do you find the gene analysis? No, I mean, no, who's doing that research? Like, if I wanted to look up, yeah. that's kind of ongoing. I've heard a couple of fellows present what they're doing, but yes. uh, it doesn't seem to be talked about a lot. So. Well, it's, it's because it's new enough, we're not really there yet. I mean, certainly there's work going on all over the world about uh, pharmacogenetics, uh, the addressing of the, of the genetic lesion. Uh, my favorite place, the, the guy I work with, is uh, at Vanderbilt. So I know that they're doing a lot of work at Vanderbilt with this, but, but I also know that several schools out uh, uh, on the uh, uh, west coast, the, le the left coast, are, are, are doing work with this, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of work being done in northern Europe. So that's where I would look for things that are coming. I, I can't say that, uh, that we're uh, all the way down that road yet. Sorry, can everybody hear me? Uh, Professor Hardin, um, do you think we may be on the cusp of an accelerated uh, rate of progression in regards to understanding basic mechanisms of pain and potential therapeutic targets with now new technological advances like... Uh, the work that Professor uh, Disseroff and his team's doing at Stanford with optogenetics, uh, I think there's a project called Clarity where they're going to map the brain at a molecular level in terms of um, signaling. Do, do you think? I'm sorry. Uh, like I say, I'm a little hard of hearing, but, but would, you, would you summarize that into a sentence, what your question is? Uh, improvements or uh, new... Um, potential therapeutics is going to increase, I guess, in the next decade uh, with recent technological advances. Uh, do I feel like that... Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I tell you what. After we're, after we're done, I'll, you and I will have that question uh, personally, okay? Anybody else? Any discussion? All right. Thanks. <laughs>